0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100%
1: commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik.
2: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron, and our guest today is Michael Betzelel. He's the Senior Vice President of JLL, and we're here to talk about uh, apartment brokerage. I've actually known Michael since my start in the real estate career at Collier's. At that time, he was also at Collier's, and the very first apartment deal I ever did there was with Michael and I've known him ever since. So it's you know, great to have him on the, the podcast. Welcome to the show, Michael.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks,
2: Adam. As a lead off into the episode, we always like to ask the background. You know, I gave, I guess, uh, the last eight years of your background, but I'm sure your real estate career started prior to that. So it'd be great to hear, you know, kind of from the start, you know, how you got into it and how you got to where you are now. Great. Thank
0: you. First of all, let me just say, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today and I've have a lot of respect for First National and we've got a great relationship with you guys and a lot of the the other people in the shop. So appreciate the invitation. Of course. My story is I've been in in a multifamily specialist uh, on the brokerage side for 13 years, came right out of MBA school in 2005. And while most students are uh, looking for jobs in marketing and finance you know, on the VC side or whatever, recruiting in MBA school, I was not doing that. I was looking for a an industry that I wanted to insert myself in, not necessarily a specific job. And through my community and through other personal connections, I realized I wanted to be in commercial real estate. I saw the flexibility and the opportunity and the amount of wealth that was created by so many private individuals. And so brokerage, I felt, was the best way to learn the business as you're dealing with buyers and sellers and consultants and engineers, and you get to see the physical buildings and you underwrite them financially, and you get to deal with lots of unique characters on both the institutional side, on the private side, and you're really exposed to all elements of the deal and the actual physical real estate. So that, that was a great way for me to get into the industry. I also saw it as an entrepreneurial type career path that allowed me to have flexibility. And if you know if it didn't work out, there hopefully would be other routes I can go within the industry, whether it was working for a developer or an asset manager. So that's why I, uh, I chose to get into real estate. And at the time, I was offered the opportunity at Collier's to specialize in multifamily. And what appealed to me about multifamily is that it's A bit of a silo from the rest of the commercial real estate market. So if you're selling, it was appealed to investment real estate, selling, not necessarily leasing. And what I liked about multifamily is there is really no commercial real estate leasing business in multifamily. If you own an apartment building, you rent it yourself or your property management rents it yourself. Or potentially you put up a sign or you use viewit.ca or Or KGG. Exactly. So- there's no crossover. There's no competition. It's a very underrepresented
1: market. And I saw that as a great opportunity. So that well, got some me. people consider it boring, right? It's the, it's the plain vanilla component of commercial real estate, which I, I disagree with. Don't get me wrong. But that is, <laughs> that is certainly, you know, when you talk to the guys who do the office and the industrial and it's all these moving parts and you got lease terms and, you know, like you said. But actually, what's really interesting about to me anyway but apartments is there's all this really kind of intricate fine tuning to really squeeze the cash flow that you really have to be an expert and really understand it to really appreciate how how hard that is. Well, if you go
0: through an apartment building and you look at all the suites in an apartment building, it's certainly not boring. I mean, you your eyes are opened widely as to, you know, how most people live and how some people live and you get to see some things that you know, most people don't have the opportunity to. we also have the, the pleasure of working with, you know, some very unique individuals, particularly on the private capital side, families that have built fortunes from nothing, you know, came here to Canada with very little and have had the took a lot of risk and, and built a, a property or a portfolio that, you know, is sizable and valuable.
1: And, and usually the, starts
2: with a triplex, and then all of a sudden you know a generation goes by and they've got a thousand units, two thousand
0: units. It's a ton of stories like that and typically, they're very modest. I mean that's one of the neat things about our industry is to see how that modesty extends down into, into next generations because they come from grassroots where you know they were doing a lot of the work themselves, so that's you know there's a lot of neat things about the industry. It's also. You know, in a sense, a little bit of a recession-proof industry when the market went down in 08. You know, in 09, the first—nobody was trading real estate. And in 09, the first asset class to rebound and the lenders were lending on was multifamily because it's predictable. And I don't have to tell you guys um, the merits of apartment ownership. People don't leave or move or they still continue to pay the rent. They need a place to live. Whereas if you have 100,000 square feet of industrial and the dollar— you know, changes or um, there's economic volatility, you might lose your tenant and be sitting on an empty building. Multifamily
1: is, you know, easy to finance and a yeah, vacancy went from 1.3% to 1.8%. Right? That, exactly. That's the jump that happened. <laughs> so, your first year in
2: real estate. The kind of per unit valuations you were seeing then, as compared to now, what's the uh, the yeah.
0: multiple <laughs> multiple above? <laughs> if only I knew, and I wouldn't have become a broker, I would have tried to raise capital. You would have bought, bought that threeplex. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably sixty five a door. I mean, we we were weren't doing a lot of deals in my first year or That's two. Six
1: hundred fifty thousand dollars per unit on a valuation. You know, sixty five thousand right?
2: yeah, a unit. Right. Yes, and, and just uh, we actually didn't address this at the start, but. Michael focuses on uh,
1: GTA, and so valuations here. So we now. apologize for anybody outside of, the, outside of the GTA. We will cover apartments and other markets, we promise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, technically,
0: my team represents all of Ontario. I think today's conversation is primarily about the GTA, but we do. I mean, we're currently um, firm on a property in London, Ontario. We've done Ottawa, and Barrie, and Kingston, and Kitchener, all within the last year. We're very active all over Ontario, but
1: I think today's conversation <laughs> primarily is regarding... GTA and the valuations, yeah. yeah. No. So, sorry, finish that thought off. Sixty-five thousand dollars per unit when you started, and what's the what's the high water mark in the last yeah, year? What's or the most what, expensive yeah. per unit you've seen in the last year? That uh, or what would be the average? The yeah. kind of the top end of the well, average. Well, this
0: year the average to date, the average price per door in the GTA is two hundred and sixty thousand a suite. You know, cap rates reported cap reported cap rates are actually up from last year, but reported cap rates are. Not always necessarily accurate, but they're also only about 25% of the deals have reported cap rates on them. So it's not really a relevant number, but that's at about 4.2%. Last year was 3.7%. So it's up, but I don't think that's a legitimate number.
2: Um, Yeah. How you
0: calculate that is
2: definitely up for negotiation. I I saw a
1: report and I can't remember, I apologize. I can't remember who produced the report, but it was 3.05 was the kind of the reported cap rate. So
0: it depends on who you ask. Yeah. No, but we're seeing deals, I mean, on new purpose-built rental, for example, Real Star paid four and a quarter, $423,000 a door for a new purpose-built rental building this year. You know, there's a lot of deals being done north of $300,000 a suite. And I think cap rate's becoming less of a relevant number.
1: When- Why do you think that is? You know, let's give context, because in the, in the lending world where Adam and I live— That's a number that gets used, you know, gets relied upon pretty actively because it's, you know, one of the best ways to compare apples to apples, so to speak. You know, properties are generating NOI, you divide it by sort of a standard cap rate, and that's just going to be your value. So, you know, apartments in Toronto, you know, we would use a four and a quarter or four and a half. And that's just the number regardless of, you know, there may be some other variables have some impact, but that's just the way we kind of approach it. So why do you think that on your side, you're seeing that, you know, your, your buyers and sellers are really less focused on it?
0: Yeah. So on a um, on any given transaction, on any given deal, it's important to understand the cap rate. What is the cap rate going in? But it's also related to the price per suite and the amount of opportunity in that asset. So when you're looking at a portfolio or the whole market and saying, oh, this year, the average cap rate was four or it was 3.2 or it was 4.2, that's not fair. Because in reality, the two point five cap deal might be a much more, a much better
1: buy than the four point five cap. It deal. might be a five cap when it's stabilized. Exactly,
0: and you know, I've told the story before, but we, the end of twenty seventeen, we sold six properties, six buildings in that South Etobicoke neighborhood of Park Lawn and Queensway. The first one was a twenty five unit building that we sold at a two point five cap rate and it was 166,000 a door which actually at the time was the highest price per door in that market 2.5 cap 166 a door beautiful bones potential to obviously tremendous potential to add value and the average rent in the building was like $800 and a lot of two and three bedroom apartments we which also for anybody not in Toronto means there's considerable upside in rent uh, there for on rollover you're going to see a big jump up correct the second two buildings that we sold as a portfolio was about $190,000 a suite. So about $35,000 a suite higher. And the cap rate was 3.4%. Okay. Still a lot of opportunity to improve. Not even as good of a suite mix or as well capitalized. Less opportunity, but better in going return. And even 3.4 is pretty low, but $190,000 a suite was, you know, now the new watermark. Then we sold three buildings for Starlight that they owned and we're managing with metcap and those buildings were sold for a 3.7 or 3.8% cap rate at $228,000 a suite. So what is the best buy? Is it the 2.5 cap or is it the 3.8 cap? And that's in the exact same market, same building profile, same everything, just the way they were performing going in and the opportunity to increase value is clearly, you know, there's a major discrepancy there. So that's the nature of understanding cap rates. Typically, the lower the cap rate, the longer the story. And it is important to look at the cap rate. And particularly for you financing the building, you know how much leverage are you going to be able to get and who's going to be able to buy this? How much cash will you need? But in my opinion, it's not the only part of the
1: equation. And it's unfair to compare deals based on cap rate alone. So let's keep going down that road. So you're having these conversations with these clients about what they're comfortable buying the property at, regardless of cap rate. And, and you know they might have their own way of sort of envisioning what the value is. What kind of things do they say they're going to do in order to to improve the quality of the cash flow to stabilize the asset? I mean, whether it's a two cap, or they think they can turn it into a six cap, like what kind of things are they actually saying yeah. they want to do to the building? I mean, it's not rocket
0: science. The hardest thing to do is to get turnover and that's clearly the most lucrative. I'm curious to see the CMHC report. It should be out in a couple of weeks. They typically track turnover and we've seen turnover go from 20 to 25%, you know, 10 years ago down to last year it was reported at 14 and percent. And I guarantee this year it's going to be Lower
1: and that's that's just supply and demand, right? That's just I, if you're looking around, saying, you know, let's say ten years ago, you're looking around saying, well, I can move and it's going to cost me an extra hundred bucks per per month. Now they're looking around and thinking, well, it's going to cost me an extra four hundred bucks per month if I move out of this place, right? Exactly, and the, and the gap to market is continue has continued
0: to increase substantially. So average, and, and this goes for any building in Toronto unless it was built and leased in the last year or two. Every single building in the in the market doesn't matter who it's managed by has substantial rental opportunity to increase rents from current average rents to asking rent. So that's the biggest one. And some of them it's 30, 40, 50%. I mean, we just put some townhomes under contract in Mississauga and you know, the average rent in the building is just over $1400 for in, the, in each townhouse and this is four bedroom townhouses with two bathrooms and a backyard and in-suite laundry and a garage in their house with a driveway, really like full house and fourteen hundred and fifty dollar average rents and really which is
1: I'm trying to do the math backwards, is probably like a dollar and a half a foot kind of thing, like really low
0: it's less than a dollar a foot Wow, so you know at the end of the day, there's probably a thousand dollars of upside on those challenges is, is nobody's gonna leave. there's anybody that has that grade of a living situation that has more to lose where are they going to go, right? So that's one of the challenges, but certainly the biggest opportunity in the market in terms of adding value, going back to your question, is is on rental turnover. Obviously, utility efficiency is a big one as well. Other There's other channels for increasing revenue, which could be you know parking or laundry or other amenities in the building.
2: Significant capex can see a return as well for buildings that have really been under-maintained for you what know, could be decades. I've heard that repeatedly from borrowers that, they will see a return on that. So yeah, if you're buying at a two and a half or a three cap, but you're getting an effective, you know, 10% return on your CapEx and there's significant opportunity to put in the building, that's, you know, one of the ways you can drag up your cap rate to something, something respectable,
1: something that makes sense. And you know, this conversation, you gotta, you have to keep in mind what the buyer profile is and what their horizons, what their perspective horizons are. We had a, a client who you know talking about taking the market down was buying things at cap rates at the time that were market leading, right? You know, let's say, and this is seven or eight years ago, so maybe market caps were five, and he was buying things at three and a half. And people would ask him why. He's like, "Well, I don't, I don't really care about the cap rate. I'm going to hold this building for thirty or forty years and give them to my kids. It's irrelevant to me. I think it's worth this, and so that's what I'm happy to pay." Right? There's no doubt. There's no doubt. And and in reality, that's who's buying. In the past
0: few years, it's it's very difficult for buyers that are you know looking at everything on a spreadsheet and saying okay this is a 10 million dollar acquisition i can pay i can put in 2 million in cash i'm going to see this kind of cash on cash return in year 1 and year 2 and it doesn't work like that anymore you know the, the old school guys that built these buildings and some of the most influential private capital investors in our city you know suffered for 20 years and didn't really make a lot of money and then just woke up one day and they had all this real estate and it's incredibly valuable. So there's not to say to be blind when you buy but fundamentals are key and you know the the merits of the multifamily world is stability and predictability and financeability, not 50% you know, leveraged yield. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So
1: Well, so what does the buyer profiles look like. They, so, know, there's a lot of there's a lot of public money, pension funds are entering the space. Of course there's REITs, uh, and as you mentioned there are there's a lot of private families as well. So maybe just kind of profile what they're doing and how they approach how they approach multifamily.
0: So in general um, historically the market has, you know, the last 20 years has been dominated by REITs, institutions, major private net worth, but it was like 50% or less. You know, surprisingly there was more than half of the deals have been are typically acquired by private capital the market's changed reits this year basically bought nothing in the gta everyone loves to say reits there's two things that sellers love to hear reits and foreign money like they think those are the golden <laughs> ticket but the reality is is reits have to pay returns and they're not they're not tremendously
1: active on the acquisition. Because they're so, actually looking at what levered returns right. they're getting and comparing their cap rates in their first year cash-on-cash Quarterly returns. distributions yeah, they got to worry exactly. about. And they're not, not
2: giving it to their grandkids. They've got to worry about next quarter.
0: So yeah.
1: the asset management companies are
0: dominating. You know, so this year, so between 2000 and you know, 1995, let's say, and 2012, the average amount of sales per year is between five and 8,000 apartments a year. Okay, that's apartment buildings, apartment
1: units, units okay, okay.
0: in the GTA. Typically, we saw anywhere from 800 million to $1.5 billion in trades in the GTA total value of all transactions this year. And this is only up till October 31st. And I've added in a couple of deals that we have uh, that are firm and closing in the next few weeks. We've done $2.1 billion yep. in trades wow. in 2018, and that's not done yet because that's still got, you know, another 60 days to go. So, 2.1 billion. Last year in 2017, there was 1.3 billion on 6,000 suites. This year is 2.1 billion on 8,000 suites. And here's the crazy part about that. So, part of that is just because of the appreciation of the value of the suites. Rents are the, up. Average sweet price this year in the GTA was 260,000. In two thousand and seventeen it was two hundred and sixteen thousand. Now it's not always fair to compare because there could be a portfolio of buildings in deep Scarborough or in deep, you know, South Oshawa that could skew the market. Similarly, there could be a uh, portfolio of buildings at Young and Eglinton that can skew the market. So or new build uh,
2: coming for sale, which can have
0: a way higher average price per unit. Exactly. Nonetheless, of that two point one billion this is where thing. this is market this number is going to blow you away 1.95 billion of it was bought by quote unquote institutional buyers and not, not all these buyers are technically institutions but mostly asset management companies
1: can you give some examples wow. of who you're talking about
0: Starlight Investments which has been you know formerly Transglobe has been the biggest buyer of apartments in Canada for the past 20 years basically went from 0 to 35,000 apartments they bought 185 million dollars last year in the GTA. This year, 1.1 billion. They represent over 50% of all acquisitions in the GTA. They bought over 4,000 apartments this year. And that's not only GTA. They're acquiring all over Canada and they're just a machine right now and you know, we're fortunate to, you know, be close with them and doing deals with them. That said, you know, for the health of the overall market, be nice if we had some other competitors in there. So it, that does literally blow me away. <clears throat> you kind of hear anecdotally the market's been
2: skewing that way for the last number of years, but to hear it's that lopsided or out of balance is. Is it appropriate
1: surprising. to ask why? What is it that Starlight is seeing in the market that's motivating them to be more aggressive than the majority of the other participants?
0: You know, and again, it's a bit of a um, mystery to me. I don't know all the details behind the curtain. But fundamentally, they have uh, pension fund money. They have a variety of different tranches that they're acquiring within. They are incredibly good at acquiring. You know, Daniel Drimmer is um, a tremendous negotiator, and he has a track record that is
1: unparalleled in today's market. And it's no secret. Uh, it's, so, I mean, it's public that he's partnered with CPPIB. He's partnered with BlackRock, Blackstone. Blackstone, Blackstone, Blackstone. sorry, yeah, From the US. Yeah, right. So he's got. So he's got a lot of big ticket cash yeah. behind him as well, right?
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, he's, he's, his track record precedes him. So if he's, you know, it's him and someone else in a, in a, in a, in a bid situation, sellers feel comfortable. They know the deal will get done. So that's a, yep. uh, that's a big part of it. And their team has been, he's a good team and, and they get. Yeah. They well, i just
1: of, to add on to that. I mean, just, it's no secret first national does a lot of the financing for those acquisitions. And part of the comfort that we get is that his, his program of turning suites and retrofitting units. I mean, he's got a machine that does that, right? He can do it fast. He can do it quickly. I mean, he might have a unit just vacant for a month and he'll put a $20,000 retrofit program into that unit, get the rents up, you know, sometimes 40, 50, 60% from what they were. So as you talk about reputation, that's kind of the program he's done for decades and and he keeps making it work. And you know Timber Creek
0: also um, bought four hundred and forty million dollars this year. Yeah,
1: the wind the wind portfolio right, sale. So
0: the wind portfolio was the majority of that, pretty much all of that, except one other building in the GTA. But um, was that that
2: likely be the largest
0: transaction of the year? That's probably the largest transaction I've ever seen. I mean, this is an eight. Just in Toronto multifamily, this is an eight hundred and forty million dollar
1: transaction well, and there was a commercial component to it too, right? I think the total was one point one and change yeah. billion dollars of a, of a transaction
0: yeah, so just for anybody that's not familiar, the Wynn family sold their portf- their entire portfolio from a mu- which was reported over a billion dollars, included some u s properties as well as some commercial properties, but from a multifamily perspective. In the Toronto and GTA, there's $842 million of transactions. The portfolio was split between Starlight and Timber Creek. They came in as one united front. Basically right down the middle, I think Timber Creek took a little bit more than Starlight. There were 19 properties and almost 3,200 units. And some
1: great assets. I mean, there's, I don't know, out of the number of units, there's half of them are in Parkdale, right? Like there's a ton of those assets are, are in really sort of, gentrifying locations where there's great upside and the opportunities to retrofit the suites and get the rents up.
2: Well, Aaron, in your, in your previous career role at First National as an analyst, you would have probably seen some of these. Yeah. I'm very right? familiar
1: with yeah. the wind portfolio. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They were a client of, of mine and my originator that, that I worked with at the time. So where, so out of this mix of, you know, obviously asset
2: management dominated purchases, the private capital guys in the outskirts, what are, what are they doing? What are they thinking? Where's the rest of them? You know, what, uh, or are they just being shoved to the side?
1: And do you have conversations with these guys where they just they come to the table to buy something and they see Daniel Drimmer on the other side and they go, ah, crap.
0: Yeah, I mean, buying real estate is not easy. It, even if you are a formidable buyer, you need to invest time, you need to invest money, you need to try to win in, in an environment where it's very competitive and, and it's exhausting. And you, you could potentially uh, you know go to you know, show up to uh, five, 10, 20 different bid scenarios and come up with nothing. And then you've got, you know, a group like Starlight who's investing in every one with, you know, getting their own environmentals and BCAs and building walks and trying to come in firm. And it's just very difficult to compete. So I I could see why from a private investor's perspective, it it can be exhausting. That said, there still remains a lot of private capital that want to own just hasn't been successful over the last couple of years. What I am seeing is, you know, in, you know, in private capital, particularly this, like now my generation, getting more creative, looking at mixed use opportunities, looking at, you know, adding density, looking at, develop, you know, just trying to find ways, co-living, seniors, housing, students. There's so many options up out there right now to try to make money. The challenge is, is cash. You need more cash. So instead of, you know, if you had a million dollars in your pocket, you used to maybe want to go out and buy a building for three or four million dollars and, and you could finance the balance and see positive returns. Now, you know, you're looking at something with two million dollars. So what we're starting to see is a few more syndicates appearing, a lot of asset management groups that smaller asset management groups that are you know bringing in different private investors and teaming up to try to, to compete against some of these larger buyers. So are you seeing any interesting structures in order to get deals done to try and hit these prices or
2: overcome the cash obstacles? I mean, obviously, Desirable Assets probably just has a lineup of buyers, but you mentioned your markets you know, outside of the GTA. Do you ever see structures there? VTB is part of the picture. Are you seeing any of that?
0: Yeah, like on the private side, I mean, there's been a few deals. There's only been about $150 million of private transactions. And by the way, when I say private, there are some private investors in that $2 billion range, but that's like a homestead or a... You know, uh,
1: even a um, medallion or one of those major major. You'd really classify them as institutions, even though they might be privately owned. But
0: generally speaking, you know, I've seen a few deals with VTBs being done. Um, Really, really nasty assets are obviously being financed with you know short term, higher yield debt, so that you know the investor can turn it around and then refinance it potentially with CMHC. You know, two or three years down the road, those are the kinds of deals that you know, where the private investors are, are able to compete.
2: So they're still showing up at deals. I mean, when you're, when you're putting it, taking property to market, you'd have a pretty organized structured procedure. Are you still seeing the same number of people at the table as you would have seen, you know, call it two years ago when, I mean, Aaron and I view everything through an interest rate lens and everything's (laughs) much cheaper then. (laughs) we understand. It's not the end all and be all of real estate, but are you still seeing the same activities, same number of offers, you know, same deal velocity? Is that all? Roughly I, in I line think it two years slowed ago.
0: down a little bit and it really depends on the asset, right? Like there's certain types of buildings that are more appealing to more investors. When you hit that 50 to a hundred unit Mark, you have a really, you have a lot of crossover between private and private investors, institutional public investors. When you're sub 50 units, there's a lot more private groups and obviously over a hundred units, a lot fewer. So I think it really depends on the asset where it's located. You know, AAA properties, downtown Toronto, midtown Toronto, they're still seeing a, a big lineup of investors, but I don't think it is what it was. I think there are, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of buyer fatigue. And unfortunately, there's some groups that are just, you know, choosing not to participate, understanding that the cap is going to be too low and the, the amount of cash required will be too high. You know, we've, we just, you know, secured a, a transaction where we, you know, two large deals, almost 600 units in Scarborough and another 400 units in London. And we had, you know, bids on each asset. We had bids on the portfolio as a whole. But this is a major property and it's pretty much exclusively institutional. But on the smaller side, yeah, I think we're seeing the, the demand drop off a little bit. Pricing hasn't dropped off because expectations are still there and there's still enough groups that will pay the price. But I think the number of offers has certainly uh, dropped off.
2: I can see what you mean about, you know, deal fatigue. I've always always thought that for... You know, you list uh, a 20-unit building and attract 32 offers. Well, you think about, for the most part, people are putting a lot of brain work into their offers. A lot of homework, a lot of crunching numbers. They're engaging their lenders. You yeah, have a 1 in
1: 32 chance of yeah. winning. Yeah. So you have a
2: network of literally hundreds of people all duplicating each other's work. You know, it's always, it's always seeming to be kind of inefficient. but And I know that, obviously, you know, the broker's packages that you do, trying to address a lot of that up front to save 32 groups all duplicating their own homework on it. But do you want to talk about that a little bit, what you do for your process when you're bringing, you know, one of your larger portfolios to market the kind of, you know, sure. the, the
1: work that you well, do? And maybe before you get there, and I, that is, that's a great place to go, but we'll talk about sourcing the deals, finding the, the buyer or the seller, finding, I guess the seller is probably the, the better approach, but what do you do and how do you go about, you know, getting yourself involved in the transaction in the first place?
0: You know, fortunately we've had the uh, opportunity to, to get to know the majority of the, people in this market. And obviously I still don't know everybody, but over the years, you know, deal flow is the best way to get more business. You know, people, every time we sell a, a new, come to market with another asset, we meet another person. And over the years, the person that gets added to our list and sees their, the way we work and having an opportunity to communicate with different people, they get to see, you know, the benefit of our process and they, they follow our results and our track record. So- most of the business we get are, are just calls directly to us saying, hey, Michael, we're looking to sell our building and, you know, we want to know what you think. That's where the majority of the business comes from. And it's from all sorts, whether it's, a, you know, a, a REIT or a, or an institution or it's a private individual. You know, early on, it was a lot of cold calling and a lot of getting to know people and a lot of empty results. But obviously, you know, as we built our business up, we're, we're more successful. And now we do less of the the cold calling and more of uh, managing transactions. It, with respect to our process and how do we run a process, you know, we believe we do. We believe that our process is a lot more transparent. What you'll find at the end of the result is that we rarely ever have haircuts in our deals because we take the time up front. So, what do you mean by a haircut? So when a when a building comes under contract on a conditional deal, we want to make sure that it gets waived and closed at the exact same price that was promised up front. And part of that is making sure that we have transparency in the numbers, a very detailed description of the asset and all the elements of that asset. We have environmental reports done in advance, and we have clear communication of the process and the expectations, both with the vendor and with the prospective investors all throughout the process. We we try to engage participation. We want to make sure that all bidders understand the process and believe they have an opportunity. And actually to give everybody a legitimate opportunity and, and tell them about the hurdles that they they will have to overcome to be able to acquire the asset. Really it's it's not rocket science for us. It's it's a lot of making sure that we're transparent and that we're diligent in providing the appropriate information about the asset and about the process.
1: When you're sitting in front of a property owner and they're wanting to sell and you're trying to convince them to list with you, what is the story that you're telling them? I mean, aside from like you just described, you know, transparency and ease of ease of the transaction, but what, you know, how do you differentiate yourself from your other competitors? I mean,
0: there's a couple of other very strong competitors that we see all the time and you know, we don't win every opportunity and, I'd say how we potentially differentiate ourselves is that we're a full team. I have a a business partner, Earl Kuffner, who I've been with since I started the industry. He has a very different skill set than I do. He's less out front speaking to, you know, he wouldn't be doing this podcast as an example. He doesn't really get involved as directly with most of the, the clients, but he's an urban planning and an engineering background. He manages the pre due diligence and the due diligence, particularly on the physical and the environmental side, probably second to nobody in this industry. And we have a very strong relationship and we're able to communicate with all different buyer types. It also provides coverage for our clients. So they know that when the building goes under contract and that when we're managing a due diligence or a, a marketing program, we're available. We have two of us and with very strong different skill sets and aligned. So that that's a big part of it. And we also have a full team. Our marketing materials are they're different on every deal that we do. We create a brand. You know, selling real estate is—we're selling. We're, we have to. We're marketing. It's not the same every time. We we look at the asset and we try to figure out what's unique about that asset and what's unique about how it fits into the market and the submarket location that it's in, as well as what are the drivers in that neighborhood and and how does it fit into today's investment marketplace. And then of course, just our track record of how we, who we sell to and what we've done. And you know, a lot of it is really about personality. At the end of the day, this is a similar to what you guys do. They have to deal with us and they have to communicate with us. And for a period of, you know, three to six months, usually we're the ones that they're relying on to sell their family's property or their company's property. And they want to know that they're in good hands and that they feel comfortable talking to us. And Someone they like. I mean, sometimes we lose and maybe it's just because they liked someone better and that's okay. So, those are the things I'd say would differentiate us in terms of, you know, when we pitch and, and we also don't push people to sell. Selling is something you only get to do once and you want to make sure you do it at the right time. We'll give everybody the appropriate information so that they can make an informed decision, but ultimately it's their decision. I'm not here to push you to sell your building. We're just here to execute and when you're ready.
2: It's actually funny you mentioned that about your partner, Earl Kuffner. I mentioned at the top of the episode that we did a deal with Michael and Earl. It was probably my first year of being in real estate. I remember touring the apartment with him. And I didn't know the background you're, you're talking about now about his engineering background. I was unaware of. And he's ramming off stuff about the building that had my head spinning. I remember thinking at the time, like, do I need to understand buildings at this level to sell them? It was uh, quite, yeah, uh, no, quite an eye opener.
0: He's awesome. And he, he's <laughs> rubbed off a lot of me. And when we tour a building with a, we do individual property tours and we're, we're very, our intent in a property tour is to make sure that that prospective buyer really understands what they're buying. And you know, covering it all up is not always the right way to do it. You know, well, at least you, a haircut. So the, it just uh, leads yeah. to you know m- more disappointment deals. down the road, right? So, we'd rather get into a marriage where it's going to stay. You know, it's going to it's going to work. And you know, doing a deal is a dance. It's not a war, right? So we 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 want a, a willing participant. You know, the greater fool theory typically doesn't really work unless someone comes in unconditional.
1: What and, is the concept of off market? true? Like, is there, are there off market transactions? Yeah. Do you get asked all the time to participate or help, you know, kind of do that? And, and what's the, what's the process? You
0: know, it doesn't work every time. It depends on the asset, depends on who the buyer could be. Fundamentally, I, I believe that you should market every asset, but there are certain times when that doesn't work, you know, whether, you know, the buyer's obvious and they're prepared to step up to a, a crazy number. Maybe they own the building next door, you know, and, and Usually, an off-market deal has to do with a vendor not wanting to have to go through the process because the sales process is laborious, it's painful sometimes. Your staff get disrupted, You're, there's people through the building, tenants could complain. You know, there's photographers, it's long and it's tedious. and usually it results, usually it results in better pricing. And comfort amongst partners, if there's partners, that it was done well. That's, you know, when there are partners, you really want to make sure that you market the property so there's no confusion or misconception that it was undersold or someone else, someone bought it that maybe um, shouldn't have. So off-market deals do happen. They're sometimes the best way to go. Generally speaking, we're a big fan of uh, marketing buildings.
2: But you get into the the larger unit counts on a transaction, as you mentioned before, your buyer pool shrinks down. Are you more likely to see off-market there and that you know the six people to call that could come up to the table?
0: Quite the opposite. I mean, I think with bigger deals, you have a bigger responsibility as a vendor to make sure that you achieve you know, maximum result. Because you know the difference in 10 beeps on a cap rate could be millions of dollars. And hiring a broker to run a process and spend the amount of time and effort is certainly worthwhile. As well, typically with larger properties, there's more room for trying to drive value. So, whether it's through the way we underwrite or the way that we showcase the asset, you know, the NOI could be impacted tremendously by doing some more analysis and really understanding where the drivers are. And so, I I would say that, you know, to answer your question, the bigger the property, the more it really needs to be marketed, even if it's only six groups.
1: And are you potentially hoping that there's a foreign buyer that's entering the market or, you know, someone that's kind of unknown? Everybody's hoping
0: for the foreign buyer, but multifamily in general is a very domestic business. If you look at who owns and buys and manages, you know, foreign buyers don't come here and want to buy three caps. They think, particularly Americans, when the dollar started to shift, Americans came up here and said, oh, I want to buy Canadian real estate. I want to buy Canadian multifamily. And they just don't understand our market—it's very different. It's all old, right? Ninety-nine percent of the buildings were built in the fifties and sixties. It's not these big, garden, sprawling, beautiful communities. They're concrete high rises and concrete mid rises with uh, you know aging buildings. There's a rent control environment to an extent. Cap rates are low, very low. There's a lot of stability and predictability, but it's not. You know, once they actually get in here and sink their teeth in, they realize it's very difficult to acquire here. It's a management intensive industry and the majority of, of buyers are have some sort of domestic presence. Even if the capital's coming from you know, I believe you know obviously Achilles has foreign capital, a Conundrum has foreign capital, but these are domestic enterprises right now that have their own you know, Canadian state.
1: staff. Exactly.
0: So
2: speaking of Americans, what's your what's your view on Blackstone entering the market here? For anybody who's not familiar, they're one of the largest uh, real estate operators in the world, and they recently made a big splash entrance to the market with a partnership with Starlight, and they have plans to acquire a lot more. So do you think they're viewing our market in a different manner than you know the Americans you're describing just a second ago? So I you
0: know I do have a little bit of familiarity with Blackstone, you know direct communication with them, you know given that they've entered our Canadian marketplace within the last year. You know, I think one of the biggest advantages that they've had in being able to acquire all types of real estate all over the world is just their size and their scale. The majority of the properties that we sell and that are sold period are, you know, 50, 100, 200 unit buildings in the five to, you know, $50 million range. There's very few 100, 200, 300, $500 million portfolios available. So it is going to be very difficult for them to compete. They do have a process that is their process, which has not necessarily been adapted to the Canadian market yet. So I think that's going to create some challenges. The deal that they did do, because they did enter the Canadian market, they did about 180 or $185 million transaction where they acquired some of Starlight's buildings. I think in total, it was about 536 suites in the GTA. And I believe there was another building in Montreal and um, their average price per suite on that stuff was like 340,000 a suite. This is a direct deal with Starlight and Starlight maintaining some sort of asset management role. So this is maybe just a first foray into the market at a low return. I'm not really sure how easy it's going to be for them to acquire, but you know time will tell. And you know, it's exciting to see new players, you know showing confidence, in our market, particularly at these kinds of prices. So that that gives the market a little bit more um shows a little more sustainability potentially.
2: Speaking of pricing and directly as it relates, you know, to finance, do you feel in the market that people have expectation that prices are going to continue to rise the way they've been year over year? I mean, you mentioned obviously the big increase of twenty sixteen to seventeen. Are people expecting that to to march forward or is there let a moderating add, effect?
1: Excuse me. Let me add context too to before you answer. You know, what we're seeing again, you know, Adam, like you said, we kind of see things through the interest rate prism, but with rates up, you know, 150 to 200 basis points in the last sort of 18 months, we have clients that may not be the most active, but let's say they buy a property every couple of years, right? They, you know, they might own 200 units in a bunch of 25 and 30 unit buildings, and they're showing up saying, Hey, I've got this deal under contract. I'd like to do the same thing I did two years ago where I do a Maxed out CMHC insured at eighty five percent loan to value, and I'll put in my fifteen percent. It might work up to twenty percent when you when you kind of crunch the market numbers, and then we kind of say, "Sorry, but it doesn't that won't that won't happen this time?" Looking at the cash flow and now interest rates up one hundred fifty basis points, you need another million dollars to actually close on this transaction. And they kind of go, "What do you mean?" And like the so our sense is that the market has yet to really internalize and digest the fact that. You know in financing mortgages aren't as cheap as they have been that's allowed people to acquire more units more rapidly and are you seeing that? Are you seeing the the repercussions now that financing is more expensive and more equity is required?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two parts of that question. I mean, I think Adam was asking where where's pricing going based on the interest rates essentially and mm-hmm. and you know there's more to it, right? like can't, we, as we discussed early in the conversation supply and demand is part of it construction cost you know replacement cost is a big part of it you know the ability to grow rents is a big part of it we've seen such a huge change in the potential in the rental market so i do think we are in a much lower spread than we have been just given the opportunity in these assets but i do think it is going to impact pricing i think we've seen such tremendous growth in valuations over the past decade that you know, we could start to see this flatten out. And by the way, I've been saying that for 13 years. <laughs> We've seen so much every year over year, cap rates just keep growing and, or shrinking and, and price per door keeps growing. And we keep saying, we're at the peak, we're at the peak. And yeah. it, it just keeps going. And the reality is, is we're still below replacement cost. You can't build these buildings. Even once they're renovated and everything and you, you put money into them, you still can't build these buildings for what we're trading them for. So, you know. I don't have a crystal ball, but I feel like yes, we are at a you know a little bit of a peak, and potentially it'll it'll flatten, potentially it'll come down a bit. It's difficult to say, and surely interest rates are a big part of that.
2: So maybe after 13 years of saying that, you can finally
1: say, "I told you so." <laughs> I <Right. laughs> right. was entirely right. Well, and yeah. the counterbalance, of course, to argue against my own point is that rents continue to rise. Also, so if rents rise, you know, kind of in parallel with interest rates rising, then. That delta, as you kind of maybe it's a different delta than you mentioned, but that will save the market, so to speak, right on a Quote per unquote. unit basis. Yeah, yeah. right.
0: Yeah. No, and then of course that key then goes back to turnover and being able to achieve turnover.
2: Toronto's seeing a very outsized amount of construction last year, couple of years, as compared to say you know this, the first uh, ten years of your career. How excited are you about that? And what's your view on uh, you know the rent control issues that, that go along with that? We're recording this right now. And uh, the Ontario government just announced that they're going to roll back rent control on on new builds again after that was just put in place by the previous government. So what's your view on the, the, the new build scene in uh, Toronto?
0: The government really needs to, I and mean, this is the first step in, in correcting a major mistake. You know, everybody talks about rents are unaffordable and we need more affordable housing and, you know, we're, we're in a very low vacancy market. And, you know, housing is just too expensive. And, and in the meantime, they're making it difficult with development charges and with rent controls for developers to build. And really, there needs to be more legislation to encourage development, whether it be, as I said, a reduction in DCs, whether it be tax incentives, whether it be increased density for rental. There needs to be more incentive for developers to build because as it is buying land, building rental and filling it up is v- very difficult to make sense of. There are rental projects being done all over the place, more than there has been in the last 4 decades. But it's a blip. It's most of it is being done on existing density where you know, existing landlords had, you know, built had a 1960s property on a large sprawling site that potentially had a a large parking lot and a tennis court or a pool. And now there's excess density that they can build on and it's free. That's where you're seeing the majority of new construction, which is okay. There are unique places where they've, you know, some people can buy land and build, but it's hard to make sense of it financially, particularly at, you know, there's more risk in developing it. You know, nobody's going to build to the same cap rate or return that they can buy existing for. So it's challenging.
1: We've had this conversation many times, and I, the one number that always stands out was uh, Wendy Waters, a previous guest from GWL Realty Advisors, and and her she's had a head of research for GWL, and her num her statistics and what her team discovered or you know crunched was that in order to just bring the market back to equilibrium in the GTA, we need to supply a hundred thousand units today. If we just could just snap our fingers and create a hundred thousand units. To be available, that would bring the market just back to equilibrium. So you think about that. We're building, I think there's, I think the number is something like 8,000 under construction, and there's 2,000 a year coming to market. So it'll be 50 years until we get to that 100,000 unit mark that she says is needed today. And that's just, you know, and then you talk about all the things that the legislation that's occurring and DC is being increased and all these headwinds that are forcing less supply right well, so the, other the whole thing is
0: the, backwards. The, the unit unit count isn't just the only issue it's the size of the units that are being built so you know a family doesn't want to live in a one bedroom 500 square foot unit they need space so it and it's unaffordable to you know for somebody to spend 3 dollars a foot on a 1000 square feet it's difficult to justify a building you know 1000 square foot Two bedroom, three bedroom apartments. It doesn't make sense because you're gonna get three to four thousand dollars in rent a month. So there's two issues, right? It's not the only the supply of what's actually being constructed, it's the type of rental that's being built. Because on for any given developer that is committed to building rental, they're still trying to maximize their rent per square foot. And the way to do that is on downtown
1: core smaller suites. And if selling people, it at four bucks per square okay, foot. Okay.
0: Yeah. And
2: people talk about the uh Manhattanization of uh, Toronto. That's got to include families. I mean, look at Manhattan, families do live there and uh, it'd be tough with the current rental stock and even condo stock for that matter too. Obviously the shadow market for, uh, for rental in the city.
1: Yep. Agreed. So we like to, we like to end the podcast with a question about, of our guests about uh, if they had infinite capital, what kind of asset class would you purchase and where? Well, maybe I'm a bit biased, but
0: I'm it's the market I understand is multifamily, and I believe that there's a you know a housing shortage in Ontario, primarily, particularly in the GTA. I'm a big fan of almost anything within one hour of of the GTA, and there's particularly some markets that I've seen some great trends. One is Brantford. Uh, it's a small market. We recently spent some time in Brantford working on behalf of a client, and you know you've got a whole downtown core that's been acquired by. Wilfrid Laurier University, the school is growing exponentially year over year and I think they only have about 2 or 3,000 students right now which could be 10 or 15,000 students in in a decade that it will be. And there there's a go train from Brantford going right into Toronto. It's just a beautiful little town. It it has its challenges like anywhere but housing is cheap and I think, you know, even just buying a little bungalow or a house or converting it to student residence or or even just renting it out or sitting on it. I think Brantford is a tremendous market. You know, Hamilton's been talked about for a number of years, but I still think there's opportunity in Hamilton and Kitchener-Waterloo and Guelph, you know, Peterborough with the 407 going out there. So there's a lot of secondary markets outside of the GTA that I think there's some great opportunity. in. I'm a little concerned about retail in general with the whole Amazonization of of the world. So I'm going to shy a little bit away from retail unless it's, really triple A unique retail. And I'm again I'm not that familiar with the industrial and office markets to to suggest going there. But
1: I really like secondary markets, you know, within an hour. I, until we've been focused on the GTA and how about, you know, people getting priced out of the market and you know private investors not having the ability to really meet the institutional pricing that people are willing to pay. And I may be going to secondary markets is the alternative for those people because I don't see I don't envision sort of the institutional investors going and buying an 18 plex in exactly. Brantford or Peterborough, yeah. right? Exactly. So. And that's what's happened. And it,
0: it's been happening for a long time. Pioneers started doing it years before. And there's a lot of my clients that I've known have a portfolio in Toronto, but anything they bought in the last 10 years was in Peterborough or Hamilton or Guelph or, or, who knows, or Stratford, whatever. So yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish on those markets. I want to thank our our listeners
2: for listening. As always, I want to thank our sponsor, First National. Most importantly, I want to thank Michael for coming on the show. It was great. There's a lot of you know, substantial knowledge, and anybody that's you know investing in or active in you know apartments in Ontario will probably enjoy it. So make sure you share it with your friends. Thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks to First National.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast.